Welcome to this week's Hotel Analyst podcast, where, as normal, we'll be giving you 20 minutes or so of our thoughts of matters of the moment in and around the hotel investment space. Uh, my name is Chris Bowen, the editor of Hotel Analyst, and I'm joined on the call by Andrew Sankster, the editorial director of Hotel Analyst. We are still in the midst of third quarter results season, and so we're going to start by talking about some of those results uh, presentations and the numbers that came out of those. Um, first off, taking a look at what's been going on at Hilton and Wyndham, who seem to be keen to speak about the, uh, the pace of growth of their portfolios. Uh, Hilton, most impressive uh, net unit growth figure uh, for the year of looking on about uh, 5%. Um, their biggest, biggest pipeline uh, they've ever had. Um, and they reckon about uh, nearly half of that pipeline is uh, already under construction. Of course, they recently launched their Spark and Tempo brands and have just uh, opened the first hotels under those two new brands. And they also teased the fact that they are planning on an launching another brand. This time it will be a luxury lifestyle brand because they think they're missing out on opportunities with uh, some of their owner partners. Um, but uh, all very strong figures and uh, looking good from Hilton. Um, equally, Wyndham were, were keen to shout about some of their uh, larger positive numbers. Uh, the, the amusing thing here was that um, they they wheeled on not just the usual uh, CEO, Jeff Bellotti, but the, uh, the chairman, Stephen Holmes, as well. And uh, pretty much every statement Wyndham had about how well they were doing was followed by a contrasting statement about how poorly Choice Hotels was doing in comparison. Uh, Choice, of course, have recently launched a uh, potential takeover bid for Wyndham, which uh, is quite clearly being fairly substantially rebuffed by the Wyndham management. Yeah, so starting with those Hilton numbers, which are quite incredible. It's easy, I think. We've had a succession of fabulous numbers coming out of uh, the COVID lockdown period. Um, not surprisingly, given you've gone from zero to bumper, but we're now gone way beyond where we were in 2019. Um, and if we look um, across the piece, pretty much every metric now is above 2019, with the exception of occupancy, um, which is actually good news in as much as it offers further opportunity to keep that growth coming. Um, and where there is recovery now, it's, it's clearly leisure. Leisure's gone way above where it was um, in 2019. Business transient is just about back to where it was, but group is still coming back. And within the Hilton numbers, um, RevPAR was up 8% year on year in group. Well, it was up 5% each for business transient and leisure transient. Um, still growth, but obviously the group piece is the one which is still doing the recovery and will close that occupancy gap that is still there. The other thing which is quite remarkable about the Hilton results is the size of their pipeline. Um, so if we look back to um, the Blackstone acquisition of Hilton in 2007, total room count was uh, 480,000. Well, Hilton's pipeline is now nearly as big as that. It just shows how fast and how rapidly um, you know Hilton has been growing. And you know this would go for most of its peers as well it's just been incredible how well um the hotel branded hotel sector has um been able to keep growing 
um, in the face of you know one of the worst financial situations, the global financial crash, in the face of you know the almost uh, you could get any worse than the COVID lockdowns in terms of a uh, business interruption, um, and yet despite all of these these difficulties, the branded hotel uh, model just keeps on delivering, and it, it, it's quite phenomenal. Um, and this brings us on to um, the situation at Wyndham, which, as you say, Chris, is involved in this hostile takeover. Um, uh, it's the choice of choice. Um, uh, one thing I would note is that when Blackstone bought Hilton, it paid a 40% premium. Currently, Choice is offering a 30% premium. Um, so I suspect, you know, just on that alone, there's a little bit of room for choice to to sweeten its deal the challenge however and i think it is a big challenge for choice is the debt burden it's going to be carrying and of course the key thing about debt in the current environment is its high cost um, given where interest rates are so um if you look at sort of the standard ratio of net debt to trading 12-month EBITDA, Wyndham's already fairly high against uh, its peer group of 2.5 times, Wyndham is 3.2 times, Choice is at 2.6 times, but if the deal goes through, Wyndham says the ratio is going to be 6.4 times, um, and it's going to take four years for the uh, Choice-Wyndham combination to bring its debt down to the target range of three to four times. And that assumes all excess cash flow is allocated to deleveraging. Um, interest expense would be $300 million a year for the debt load that uh, that the combination would be forced to take on. Um, Wyndham's um, defence is also uh, majoring on the uh, cha regulatory challenge. It says it's going to take 12 to 18 months of regulatory process. Uh, I'm less convinced on that, although certainly Wyndham has a bunch of allies in people like the Asian American Hotel Owners Association um, who represent something like two-thirds of Wyndham and Choice franchisees um, and um, the AAHOA uh, has described the potential combination of Choice and Win Wyndham as frightening. They don't like the idea of uh, one player having so much strength in the market. Um, now the issue that this brings up is how much strength in the market will this combo have? And the reality, of course, is that although in room number terms it's certainly going to be big, uh, in, in terms of its commercial power, uh, Marriott and Hilton certainly, and IHG, will still have the edge, I would argue. Interesting numbers from CoStar STR looking at the uh, the state of play, you know, uh, in terms of concentration in the different market segments, um, and in particular um, the independence piece versus the branded piece. And the comment that uh, uh, CoStar STR made was that look, if you look at the economy segment, it's fifty one percent still unbranded in the US. Um, we always think of the US as being a very branded marketplace, but that's in upper upscale, upscale and upper mid-scale. Um, mid-scale is uh, 
majority branded but still 29% uh, are unbranded so still a significant portion there the only other segment where there's a majority of unbranded is in the luxury segment um, so it, it, it's a from that perspective I think the regulatory hurdle isn't that big when it comes to the um, the competition side of things so um, um, the other thing I'm just going to be uh, um, have a little fun with is to suggest well look at Hilton again and look when it last made an last made a major acquisition that was back in uh, leaving aside the obviously the combination of Hilton Hotel Corporation Hilton International but if we look at when Hilton went out and bought a direct rival as it were that was back in 1999 when it paid four billion uh, for promise um, and that turned Hilton from an upper upscale manager of hotels into a major franchise player um, Hilton had only recently launched its mid-scale Hampton Inn product now what we're seeing at Hilton it's eyeing the economy market and it's just launched its spark brand and maybe just maybe it will take the opportunity to to leverage its balance sheet once again and acquire a decisive presence in that economy market perhaps with the acquisition of Wyndham Mm, okay now you're talking about those business tailwinds and uh, there was certainly plenty of comment about uh, uh, those as we heard from some of the European hotel players um, particularly uh, Scandic uh, the big leasehold operator and uh, Pandox the uh, the landlord that also operates a few of its own properties as well um, and also from um, PPHE but uh, those all declaring that they could see a good um, run of bookings ahead they can see uh, still business volume and, and meetings volume rising um, and business on the books uh, is looking um, pretty much quite a bit stronger than it was this same time last year so um, and there's something that was backed up by um, Robin Rossman of STR who did a little presentation at the end of the Pandox quarterly roundup um, and he, he's he's got a, obviously a wider view across Europe from all sorts of stats, and says that uh, you know, that the the next quarter quarter four should perform even more strongly, and uh, into the new year is looking pretty good too. So, um, despite all the uh, the the worries over the economy, uh, over international um, disquiet and and wars, um, there seems to be little to concern the uh, European hotel owners and operators right now. That co-star SDR presentation by Robin Rossman um, really spoke very much to what we'd just been um, talking about, which was how we've still got a bit of business travel recovery, but in particular quite a bit of group travel recovery. So the bit of business travel recovery still to come to get back to 2019 levels is highlighted by the relative weakness of midweek occupancies. They will, you know, they are beginning to fill up. And one of the encouraging things that uh, um, Rossman said was that uh, we are seeing very good strength now um, in in terms of uh, uh, revpar growth, thanks to that 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 occupancy piece being filled up midweek and group travel um, according to STR is still roughly about 15% below 2019 levels so that's again another thing which is a, a, a super good tailwind for the industry so 
of course because comparables are going to be much stronger the rate of growth is going to slow markedly but remarkably um, actually RevPAR growth um, sped up in September relative to July and August and that is thanks in large part to this business travel recovery piece that is super important and is going to help drive the industry further forward. Now another thing which was interesting in the presentation and I hadn't really seen reflected before um, was the idea that actually despite all this progress we've made and how much further ahead we are than 2019, if you take a longer view and go back to the, the uh, you know, pre the 2008-2009 global financial crisis, you look at 2006-2007, we're only really just back to where we were then. And so we've had this kind of horribly um, elongated period of weak trading during the um, during the, the sort of 2010s and we're finally out of that now um, and we're on to sort of more normal pace of growth but there is an argument and it's an argument we've often made at Hotel Analyst um, which is there's a secular change in consumption patterns among consumers they are keener to spend on experiences rather than stuff now, whether we're right on this or not, we're going to see over the coming years. Because, of course, if we are right, and there has been this shift, people are buying less sofas and less cars and are keener on those holidays, then we're going to see an outperformance, a continued outperformance by the sector. Um, so this is a, a you know clear statistical thing to keep an eye on the market where things are getting back to normal and coming back real strong are uh, is china and uh, we got a fairly strong flavor of that for, as uh, accor and uh, intercontinental uh, talked about their third quarter results um, and uh, th these are both both businesses that have got a substantial stake in uh, the the hotel business in china um, intercontinental was in there early and has built uh, quite substantial portfolio there aqua 2 growing fast there through via a number of of partnerships um but both of them were talking about uh, how strongly the market had come back uh how they were now seeing uh things ahead of 2019 and as michael glover the um the cfo of intercontinental pointed out there's still some uh substantial volume of, of airlift to come back into the market um which which is, is been slower to get back uh since the the pandemic and so with with the airlift still below the volume of 2019 he was pretty confident that there's going to be there's, there's quite a bit more to come from china not not just domestically but uh, as as there's much more opportunity then for international travel in and out of china as uh, that airlift builds up so um, more, yet more evidence of uh, a return to normal or new, but a new normal looking much better than the old normal and again that uh, word tailwind um, crept in um, I, I looked at uh, IHG September investor presentation rather than its uh, Q3 uh, revenue numbers um, and in terms of it listed tailwinds and headwinds and the top of the list in terms of tailwinds was what we've just been talking about further recovery in international corporate and group travel number two mentioned was um, China reopening and uh, um, 
after China came things such as changes in working practices, the fact we've still got full employment across most major economies, with that we've got lower energy costs and easing supply chain issues, and we've got supply and demand dynamics supporting rev par growth. In other words, we're not seeing as many hotels open um, as we have historically. So at the top of the headwinds list is air travel capacity and high pricing airlines. Um, and then there's macroeconomic uncertainty, uh, cost and availability of financing for new hotel development, and finally labour costs, um, which impacts both the operation of hotels and the development um, of hotels. Um, now, I think in China, most of those headwind issues absolutely apply, perhaps only more so. Um, and adding to the macroeconomic uncertainty, you could add geopolitical uncertainty. And that's a very real situation. But as I, she was keen to point out, um, actually, the, you can over-egg the sort of China meltdown pudding um, uh, from a travel and tourism perspective, because although there is pretty unrelenting bad news coming out from China um, in regard to economics, particularly regarding its uh, property market, um, the travel and tourism piece is probably going to be one of the key ways that China is going to get through this. It has to switch from an export-driven economy to one much more orientated around consumption. Now, how well a uh, you know, communist dictatorship can actually achieve that is uh, a discussion for somewhere else, but um, that is certainly you know, I would argue probably the only real way it's going to achieve that, and it has to make moves towards that. But in terms of the property market itself, there are sort of some noises in the marketplace that maybe we're sort of getting to the bottom of that that problem in in China with regard to property. HSBC this week um, said as much, and it has made a provision for 1 billion of expected credit losses for the current year because of the property market woes but um, it, it it's not saying it's there's going to be any great rapid recovery in property but it does think that we're we're, we're at the the low uh, watermark now in terms of where the, the property uh, market's going to settle and uh, Ellie Malouf, the CEO of IHG, um, says the travel recovery piece is much better than the overall outlook for the economy. It's a very good point to make. And in fact, we've made that point ourselves here at Hotel Analyst. And the sheer size and scale of the Chinese economy and the number of wealthy people with an appetite for travel um, means that, you know, barring a, a major exogenous geopolitical shock, you know, a big falling out with the US, um, the travel market will continue to look pretty promising, I think. So that's certainly helping um, IHG, which has uh, significant exposure to that Chinese market and direct exposure. It's a direct um, franchiser. Uh, in contrast to uh, Accor, which has a number of master franchise agreements, so it's much less leverage. So, you know, it has a fraction of a percent um, of the overall um, fee levels um, compared to, you know, the several percent um, fees that um, IHG is able to generate from its direct franchising model. So, I think. Accor is less geared for a, a China recovery, but it's, it's very well poised for um, 
the Asia market outside of China and that Asia market outside of China doesn't have the same geopolitical overhang that the China market does. So um, it, 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 it's a sort of mixed bag for, for both companies, I, I, I would suggest. Um, interestingly, um, there's a lot of chatter on the uh, IHG call about you know what M&A activity is it going to engage in next. There's a lot of talk around the Star deal. Uh, I hadn't realised that they still haven't got all of those um, Star hotels into the IHG system. There's 27 of the 70 still to join the IHG system. And the problem's been the, that these hotels are owned by third parties and they've got to um, negotiate their way through um, the process with these owners and get them into the system. And IHG expects it's going to take another 12 to 18 months to get all of those um, across. Um, one thing about M&A from Ackles' perspective is it made it pretty clear it's not on the agenda at the moment. Now it's time to turn to our five star and no star awards of this week and uh, we are awarding five stars to the busy hotel companies who are repurposing offices to turn them into hotels. Um, uh, we, we had a couple of weeks ago Whitbread bought an office in the City of London. Uh, this week we've seen Z Hotels buy uh, an office a block also in central London and uh, the backers of the Point A brand have just bought one in Edinburgh all for switching to hotels and uh, uh, plenty of investors in offices are now realising they're sitting on um, assets which are worth substantially less than they were before the pandemic. Uh, now is an opportune moment if you are a hotel investor, developer or operator to uh, seek them out and go in hard. Indeed, and we've we've covered, you know, the challenges in the office market, which uh, you know we're, we're the opportunity is there. Um, the hospitality is in its strongest ever position. Um, hospitality, real estate, relative to office real estate. So um, make hay while the sun shines, or rather, maybe the better phrase would be where well, you're getting rained on less than the <laughs> office market. <laughs> And no stars this week are going to uh, the uh, well, the promised uh, end or reduction in the British government's use of hotels for asylum seekers. Well, it's no stars for the almighty <laughs> mess that they seem to be creating about the whole thing. So, um, so that the immigration minister Robert Jenrick said in the House of Commons um, that 50 hotels uh, would see their contracts cancelled by the end of January and uh, there are reports that a further 50 hotels are to see their contracts terminated in the three months after January so by the end of April um, but what is not clear is where these people are going to be going and uh, given the mess that uh, the government made of housing asylum seekers on the Bibby Stockholm barge where they had to decamp everyone when there was an outbreak of Legionnaires disease goodness knows what's going to happen and all told there's something like 400 hotels at the moment um, which are housing asylum seekers so um, they're going to have to figure out something and I suspect it can't just be in barges. Well, on a salutary note we'll say goodbye for now. <laughs>